Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, a revolution in administrative law. And Richard, this topic underscores the fact that we are living in a much different policy environment than we were just a few short months ago. You've you've now got Republicans in control of both houses of Congress. Less than 48 hours after we're talking, recording this, Donald Trump's going to be sworn in as president. And while the big changes that the press is talking about primarily revolve around things like immigration or health care or taxes, there is quietly – uh, a big overhaul going on that could actually affect all of those areas and a lot more. And this is in the area of administrative law, which <laughs> rarely leads the evening news, but it does have potentially very deep and far-ranging implications. So why don't we start for the audience just by building the foundation here for the layperson. When we're talking about administrative law, we're talking about what exactly? Well, it turns out that every legal system has to resolve two kinds of issues. One of them are questions of fact, the others are questions of law, and then sometimes there are questions in between that deal with fact and law. Do these facts amount to negligence? Normally, these questions are decided um, in judicial hearings uh, by private parties suing other private parties or by private parties suing the government. But under administrative law, what happens is you don't have trial judges doing things. You have a large administrative agency, which often has multiple responsibility. Sometimes what they do is they promulgate legal rules. Sometimes what they do is they initiate enforcement actions. Sometimes what they do is they hold elaborate proceedings in order to get information to either decide on what rules to promulgate or how to behave. Uh, we do not allow our administrative agencies to do whatever they want whenever they want. Uh, there is always going to be some kind of judicial oversight with respect to the way in which they collect facts and the way in which they decide legal um, propositions and generate rules and the way in which they bring enforcement actions. And so the question that you have to do under administrative law is regardless of the substantive matter in issue, whether it's a tax matter or a labor matter or a securities matter, is has the administrative agency, uh, which receives the power to control these things in the first instance, received, behaved in a responsible fashion. That's the battle that's at stake in this case. And the rules that have governed this uh, in the 50-odd, 60-odd years since this thing has first been developed are very long. To put it more precisely, we have a quasi-constitutional statute out there called the Administrative Procedure Act, which was actually discovered, passed 70 years ago, 1946, in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, but in the last 30, 40, or 50 years, depending on how you count, uh, the whole process has been radically transformed, become much more complicated than before. And it's the sort of thing which has generated widespread protest up and down the line. And it's the sort of thing that a Trump administration which is less comfortable with the administrative state than the Obama administration, is certain to give a close examination to. And I want to – in a moment, we'll talk about that legal transformation over the past several decades. But before we do that, I mean administrative laws really come to the fore during the Obama administration, especially once the Democrats lost their congressional majorities and the president started relying heavily on executive action. Again, sort of for listeners who may not follow the legal ins and outs that closely, just to make it vivid, Richard, what are the issues that have been in the news the past few years where administrative law has been in play? 
Well, I mean, at one form or another, there are the executive orders, which are not done by independent administrative agencies, uh, but there are also all sorts of other things that are done by administrative agencies. Uh, The National Labor Relations Board passes powerful regulations dealing with the Fair Labor Standards Act. It transforms the rules associated with the recognition of unions in particular cases. The Environmental Protection Agency runs an enormous hearing to figure out what is going to be the definition of a navigable water under the uh, the Clean Water Act of 1970. Uh, so you get those things. The Securities and Exchange Commission decides that what it wants to do is to have the prosecution of particular offenders inside the agencies without going to courts. That's an administrative law agency. Uh, can they do this thing? Uh, so every year, every agency under the Obama administration promulgates enormous numbers of rules. Many of these are devilishly complicated. And since they're kind of edgy, as you said, uh, there's always going to be an enormous amount of pushback by the regulated parties because many of these rules which have system-wide significance are, in fact, the kinds of rules that would generate furious sorts of reaction. And, you know, it's kind of executive administrative action of one form or another uh, which deals with all the complications having to do with the Affordable Care Act and so forth. So every time you pass another major substantive statute, every time you bring in a new set of administrators with respect to an old statute, administrative law is going to be called into fray. So it's never the centerpiece of most litigation, but it's always a strong actor on play. You might say it's best supporting actor for mischief across an entire range of films (laughs) that are up for Oscars. So and one last thing before we get to kind of the current debate here, going back to where you started us off a moment ago in in sort of setting the legal framework here. One of the things that always surprises people who don't follow politics or government that closely is how much of the law that they live under, especially at the federal level, doesn't come directly from their elected officials. So to use an example, it's a few years old now and one I may have used on a previous show with you, but this is data from uh, Catherine Watts, who's a law professor at the University of Washington, writing in the Georgetown Law Journal. I'm quoting her here, Richard. In the 112th Congress, just 284 bills were enacted into law, and in the first session of the 113th, just 72. In contrast, in 2011 alone, more than 3,800 new rules were published in the Federal Register, and in 2012, more than 3,700 rules were published. So, Richard, that's that's more than a 20 to 1 ratio, regulations to statutes. That doesn't seem, at first blush, like it's in keeping with the vision of government enunciated by the founders. So can you give us a sense of where administrative law fits into the constitutional framework? Sure. This is a debate that goes back for a long time. Uh, The original constitution had three branches of government, and they were meant to be somewhat delusively perhaps in watertight command compartments. There was the uh, legislative branch, which passed the laws, the executive branch, which enforced them, and the judicial branch, which adjudicated uh, the various decisions under law when they turned out to be enforced. But as we move into sort of the modern progressive era, uh, the level of ambition in administrative law starts to go up. So you're no longer talking about the administrative law for issuing driver's licenses and so forth. Now you're figuring out the administrative law for licensing nuclear power plants and all the rest of that stuff. Well, Congress has come to the conclusion, to some extent correctly, that the technical issues that are involved in trying to put these complicated schemes into place are beyond its power. 
So what it does is it delegates this issue to independent administrative agencies in order to figure out what's going on. So if you take something like the Dodd-Frank Act, it probably has about 100 directions to administrative agencies of one sort or another to develop rules dealing with certain things. And these are devilishly complicated rules, and there are all sorts of ways to do it. And so the question that you have to ask is, as you start to decide one variation or another, are these permissible variations, both of which are consistent with the statute, even if they are somewhat inconsistent with each other, or is this a case of an agency running off the reservation? Uh, Right now, one of the key doctrines is the question of whether or not uh, the so-called non-delegation doctrine applies so that you're doing things that are beyond the scope of your delegated powers. The last time this one was enforced in a serious way at the Supreme Court was in the 1935 term. So the doctrine remains on the books. It's still enforced by some state courts. Occasionally, a lower federal court will do something about it. But one can easily see that one of the traditional major checks on this fourth branch of government is relatively inert. And there is no explicit authorization for administrative agencies, and they sort of got their first official welcome in 1886 or so with the passage of the Interstate Commerce Act, but they really began to hit their stride in the 1920s and 30s. And there's a case called Humphrey's Humphrey's Estate, which essentially said that, you know, you can have these things as quasi-legislative or quasi-judicial or quasi-executive. I never remember which kinds of body. The Basic intuition in favor of this is uh, the original structure that we have is too confining. It does not work in complex times. The argument can be made even by people who are classical liberals like myself is there's just much more for government to do given the kinds of new technologies that require some degree of regulation. Um, But the issue then is, have we executed on this mission well? This is not a debate over whether or not independent administrative agencies are constitutional. It's a debate over how it is that their behaviors should be governed by the courts and to some extent by the legislature and the executive. To that point, we've laid all this groundwork. Let's take it to the present day. Republicans in Congress are aiming at a pretty significant overhaul of the way that the regulatory, regulatory state does business. Give us a sense of what they're trying to do here. Well, there are two sides of what they're trying to do. On one side, I think the Republicans may be on a fool's errand. On the other side, I think they're pretty much in the money. And that's the two questions are one, what's the pattern for review of legal questions that are decided by administrative agencies, that is questions of law, and then what do you do with the questions of fact? Uh, The more controversial issue, and the one I think that's actually easier to solve, is what do we do with the interpretation of questions of law? Uh, The 1946 Administrative Procedure Act made it pretty clear that all of these particular questions of law, when decided by an administrative agency, were subject to what is known as de novo review from the beginning. And de novo review means that you could read anything you want, including the lower court's opinions, but essentially uh, the new court makes a fresh judgment and is in no way constrained by anything that has been done uh, by either the administrators on the one hand or the lower court on the other. And the basic argument here is when you're talking about the interpretations of statutes and regulations, it's the question of how you read language and put various provisions together. That's what courts are supposed to do. That's what they do before the administrative state. That's what they can do under the administrative state. And in fact, if you have a judicial-centered system with respect to answering questions of law, it's going to prevent an enormous amount of volatility taking place when the agency is first captured by one party and then by the other. 
in what is probably the single most important decision in administrative law, a case called Chevron against the uh, National Defense uh, Defense League, I can't even remember its name, uh, uh, and DRC, uh, what they did is they said, no, we don't even read Section 706. What we do instead is we defer to the agency unless the statute is perfectly clear on its face. And if the agency thinks it ought to be read this way, uh, then we are not going to interfere with it unless we think it's completely off the reservation. Now, one of the problems that you have with this particular rule is nobody knows when it is that a statute is unambiguous or when the thing turns out to be ambiguous. And the same thing can be said with respect to various kinds of regulations. And so what you do is you have this huge fight going on there as to whether it is or is not ambiguous. And then, in fact, given the fact that courts are often willing to find things somewhat ambiguous on very shaky grounds, I might add, the agency gets to control. And this means, for example, under recent decisions that the agency, astonishingly enough, can determine the scope of its own jurisdiction. And again, this is not the kind of stuff that makes the front page in the newspaper. But if you take the definition of navigable waters under the Clean Water Act, you could either say it refers to a river or it could apply to any land which is within miles of a particular river where some runoff may at some future time have some effect on what takes place inside the river. And to allow an agency to determine the scope of its own jurisdiction is, to my mind, an open invitation for disaster. And the point goes on over and over again. And what happens is to outsiders like myself, you'll look at these decisions that are deferential and you say it really can't be so. And what we want to do is to make sure that the courts, rather than a biased agency filled with ostensible experts, sort of handle these particular questions. And there's a bill now being put forward mainly by a Bob Goodlatte in the uh, House of Representatives, which essentially is designed to restore the original balance with respect to any and all interpretations under the Chevron doctrine. Uh, to give you an idea of how complicated it is, uh, the standard rule of Chevron was there were two stages. And then somebody comes along and says, no, there's a zero stage as to whether or not the Chevron deference applies. And it might not apply to memorandums and letters and so forth. And recently I was at a conference at the Federalist Society where two uh, younger scholars were giving papers. One of them invented step one and a half for Chevron and the other said, no, you're missing something. There's also a step three. And if you put all of this stuff together, you can start to see uh, that this thing becomes an endless tangle and all of it disappears if the courts treats administrative administrative agencies, the way in which they treat any prosecutor in a particular case or any trial judge. They take into account what they say, but they make up their own mind. This is a very short, pithy provision. And if it is in fact the dump, then it will overturn probably the last 40 or 50 years of modern administrative law. So it's a very, very big deal. And I think the change is one that's all for the good. So we're talking about this right now on the legislative side, because that's where all the action is. But how about the judiciary? Are there, for instance, certain views about administrative law that you'd really want to see from whoever Donald Trump nominates to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court? Well, I mean, yes, I would like the judges to basically do through the judicial system what I think they should, that the, what the legislative reform should be. Uh, there is now an increasing unrest about the application of the Chevron Doctrine and its kid sister, a doctrine known as the Our Doctrine, which says when an agency has its own regulation, it gets enormous deference in the way in which it interprets that. And the Obama administration has pushed very hard on this. The transgender cases, uh, which are now being prosecuted or treated 
as sex discrimination cases under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 1972 and so forth. All of this stuff that transgender identity cases are a form of sex discrimination is done in accordance with our deference when there's absolutely nothing in the legal history of this area which indicated that the problem was even understood as a problem at the time of the promulgation or at any time in the administration of these particular statutes. And I think, in effect, that what's going to happen is that you're not going to get this thing going to the judges. My sense is on January 23rd or whatever the first working day is, uh, this particular case, which was brought by the Obama administration, will essentially be taken off the table by the Trump administration. They'll simply withdraw the particular suit. Uh, So um, we would like judges to do that. The other half of the problem has to do with how you deal with questions of fact. And generally there, you want to give an administrative agency a little bit of deference because it collects the evidence, evaluates the credibility of the witnesses and so forth. And this is reflected in the Administrative Procedure Act by a statement that these decisions should be reversed only if they are found to be arbitrary and capricious, which seems like a pretty forgiving standard until the famous case decided by Justice White called State Farm said that if you leave out anything in a complicated administrative procedure that belongs in or take into account something that should be ignored, you're arbitrary and and capricious. So in some, but in not all cases, you give what is called a hard look to the decisions of administrative agencies. This is a source of endless delay and confusion because what happens is somebody who wants to sandbag a new development goes to court, says it's arbitrary and capricious. Then what you have to do is send it back again. And then that same party goes to the lower court and says, you know what? Not only do you have to look at the stuff you looked at before, but two years have gone by and you have to now run the proceeding from the beginning to take into account all the stuff that happens in these last two years. So you get endless delay. And the problem with the Goodlatte bill is it essentially endorses this particular approach. So to give you an idea of what's going on, uh, the section that they want to do, which really matters on questions of law, it's about a page. The stuff dealing with the way in which you determine factual issues before an agency takes 30 or 40 pages of a statute, and nobody will understand what this thing starts to mean because everything goes to everybody. And it's just a mistaken way to do it. It's worth noting that the two great cases I mentioned to you, State Farm and the Chevron case, were efforts of a Republican administration uh, back in the early 80s in Reagan to try to undo Carter administrative stuff. And Chevron actually helped in that particular case because it turned out that the Reagan administration overturned a Carter administration on what counts as a point source under the environmental statute, and they were given deference to let it go. Uh, But the danger with that, instead of reading the statute correctly, is you now get a Democratic administration back in and you reverse it again. Uh, But the other point, uh, when they essentially uh, demanded the hard look, what the administration was doing was trying to postpone the introduction of automatic and passive seatbelts of one kind or another because they didn't think the technology was ready. And, you know, Justice Stevens comes, rather Justice White comes along. He's kind of frustrated with all of this stuff. And he wants to push this thing in directions in which it ought not to have gone. And I really think that when Mr. Goodlatte thinks about this bill, he should remember that a lot of what the Trump administration is going to try to do is to unravel previous administrative rules. And the last thing you want to do is to create such immense factual complexities in the record that that task could never get done. 
All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.